Okay, shalom and welcome to this week's Think Jewish. This week's title, Moses' Cow, Understanding a Rich Man's Prayer. We're going to need some introductions to this, to this class. Um, you know, as we often do before we get into the class, just introducing some concepts, number one. Number two, I just want to give you a introduction to everything is that this mimer, this teaching, the Rebbe delivered on the 12th of Thomas. It was in the year, in the year um, 1969. And why am I telling you that? Yud Beis Thomas, the 12th of Thomas, is the day that the previous Rebbe was freed. He was arrested by Stalin, Stalin's regime for his uh, work for Judaism. At first he was sentenced to death, then it was exchanged, the sentence to exile, and on the 12th of Thomas that all ended. So you understand that for the Rebbe, the day that his Rebbe was freed from a death sentence and, and, and from exile is the holiday of holidays. So very often you find this, this specific holiday, the 12th of Thomas, that the discourses from the Rebbe are quite long and they're also quite in detail. So this is one of those teachings. It's a one of those teachings on the Rebbe's holiday of holidays and uh, we're going to explore it, okay? So let's get, into the, let's get into the three introductions I prepared just to become familiar with what we need to understand in order to explore tonight's class. Number one, what is a statute? This week's Torah portion opens with teaching us the ultimate statute of all statutes of the Torah, the commandment of the red cow. So before we go into the details of the red cow, just understand what is a statute in the Torah language. What is a statute? And the answer is that I'm going to read to you Rashi's definition in this week's Torah portion when God refers to the process of the red cow as a, as a statute. So let me read. The verse says, okay, This is the statute of the Torah which the Lord commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and have them take for you a perfectly red unblemished cow. And it goes on with the description. Rashi quotes those opening words. This is the statute of the Torah. And Rashi himself wants to explain what this means. And he explains as follows. Because Satan, I'm quoting to you, because Satan and the nations of the world taunt Israel, saying, what is this commandment and what purpose does it have? Therefore the Torah uses the term statute. I have decreed it. You have no right to challenge it. Period. What we know from this Rashi is that the definition of a statute is when we're talking about a commandment that we have no understanding of what the purpose of this commandment is. Thus, all we have is God decreed it. God decreed it, and that's it. We have no, we have no right to challenge it. So to understand this, let's just be clear. The 630 commandments break into three categories. What are the three categories? One is what we just mentioned, chukim, statutes. The second is mishpatim, judgments. And the third is called edut, testimonies. So all 613 commandments, each one of them, will fit into one of these categories. So let's go over the categories. Chukim I already explained by quoting Rashi. These are the commandments that we have no understanding of the logical reason of why we do this commandment. Period. Mishpatim, judgments, are the exact opposite. What is mishpatim? Mishpatim is that they're so logical, the reasons of why we have to do it, that I quote to you the Talmud that says, were God not to have commanded us these mitzvot of the categories called mishpatim judgments, we would have learned them from the animal kingdom. And it goes on right away to pick two, two the first two of the examples it talks about is, number one, honesty. Honesty we would learn from an ant. It's very interesting that ants will not touch a morsel of food that they can sense that another ant already touched it. Number one. Number two, modesty. It says modesty we would learn from a cat. So this category is super logical. 
we understand it. Do not kill, do not steal, honor your father and mother. All these things fall into that logical category of judgments. The third category is called edut, which means testimonies. These are the categories in which we do a mitzvah to commemorate and give testimony to God's wonders. All the holidays that we celebrate, which are days that God did wonders for us and saved us, those all, all those holidays and all the mitzvot of the holidays are called edut, they're testimonies. Okay? So, let's go back now to what this mitzvah, the red heifer is. The mitzvah, the red heifer is called the statute of the Torah. Why? Because this is the ultimate statute. What makes this the ultimate statute? There are many statutes in the Torah. Many chukim. Why is this called the ultimate? So here's an interesting concept. King David, uh, King Solomon, I'm sorry. King Solomon, the wisest of all men. We are taught that he understood the reasons for all the commandments, including the category of chukim, statutes. However, only concerning the commandment, the statute of the para aduma, the red cow, does he say in Kohelet, the verse, I said, I will become wise, and yet she remains far from me. The only mitzvah that King Solomon could not, with the great wisdom that God blessed him, he still could not understand a logical reason was for the para aduma. Thus you understand that this is the ultimate statutes of all statutes. Even the wisest of all men, gifted by wisdom from God, could not understand it. He tried and the results were and she is still far from me. Interesting enough, I want to just share with you and we'll talk about this soon. We'll discuss this concept soon. But the sages extrapolate from this week's Torah portion from some of the words in the verse of the commandment of the red cow that God told Moses to you I will reveal the reason to you and to no other we'll discuss this soon okay this concept later on okay so that's the first introduction we understand what a statute is understand that we do not have any logical reason in the performance of a statute. Number one. Let's go to the second introduction. The second introduction is not really that much to understand tonight's class. However, it's really important that before we dive into mystical concepts, we understand the plain, simple, practical concepts. So as an introduction to tonight's class, I want to just share with you very quickly, very briefly, the process, the practical process of the red heifer. So the story is as follows. The cow has to be completely red. When we say completely red, we mean that it cannot have even two hairs that's any other color than red. The cow has to be without blemish, meaning that it has to be complete. It can't be missing a leg, so forth and so on. The cow has to also have never worked. If the cow ever carried a yoke or anything like that, it's unfit for this process. Okay. Then what happens is the deputy Kohen which means second under the high priest. There's the high priest and then there's the Sagan, the deputy Kohen. Now this deputy Kohen is the one that takes care of the red heifer. So in the first red heifer that we're talking about in this week's Torah portion, you'll see the verse says, and Eliezer the son, Eliezer the son of Aaron is the one that took the red cow because Aaron was the high priest and his son, the remaining oldest son is the deputy, Kohen. So he goes and he has to take it out of Jerusalem, out of the Holy Temple, out of Jerusalem. He goes onto a mountain from which he can see the Holy Temple. Over there, the first thing that's done is that the red cow is slaughtered in the ritual painless way. After that, the entire cow is burnt. In that fire where we're burning the entire cow, we put in three different things. Number one, we put in a piece of a cedar tree. Number two, we put in a hyssop plant. And number three, we put in a red thread. Those are the three things, a red th string. 
this all gets burnt and when it's completely burnt these ashes are then mixed with water and in a vessel and from that water and ashes we sprinkle people who have become contaminated with impurity certain impurities on the third and seventh day of the purification process also you should know that the ashes was divided into three parts one part was placed at a certain place in the temple the holy temple from which they used it every time they had to do the purification process another part was placed in a different place in the temple and that only was used for every new time that you made a red heifer so you always had the ashes of the previous red heifers involved too the third place it was put away was in the Holy of Holies and over there it was placed for one reason only in order it should serve as a membrance for the Jewish people of the process of Teshuvah and how a person can achieve purification even if he or she has fallen into the deepest depths of impurity. One more fact you should know that the first red heifer as I told you was done in the time of Moses performed by Elazar, the son of Aaron Akohen, the high priest. And after that, Maimonides accounts for another eight. That means that total there is an accounting for nine red heifers throughout the history of Jewish people. And Maimonides says that the tenth one will be done in the times of Mashiach. Okay? So I just wanted to give you the practical, physical details, at least a brief overview of what the red heifer is in a simple sense. Okay, now let's go to the third and final introduction to tonight's class. And that is, I'm going to ask you two questions. Two questions on the verse of our Torah portion, which introduces to us the laws of the red heifer. So the verse states that Moses should command the children of Israel, and I quote, and have them take for you. Ve'yikhu elecha, for you. And Rashi wants to understand, what is this elecha, for you? So I'm going to read to you what Rashi says. He quotes the verse and have them take for you and he comments. It will always be called on your name. The cow which Moses prepared in the desert. Question. Even this red heifer, even this red cow that we're talking about at the time of Moses wasn't performed by Moses. Clearly it was performed by the deputy Kohen, a Lazar, the son of Aaron a Kohen. So why does the verse call it the para aduma, the red cow of Moses? And again, quote the verse, the cow which Mo the Rashi, the, the cow which Moses prepared in the desert. He didn't prepare it. How much more so the other eight para adumot, including the ninth one when Mashiach comes. Why are they called the cow of Moses, which Moses prepared? In other words, the question here is, what is and why is there such a deep connection specifically concerning the mitzvah of Paraduma with Moses more than any other of the 612 commandments? There's something here. If we, we're telling you, it will always be called your, we're not just talking about a title, we're talking about a deep connection specifically from all the mitzvot, all 613 mitzvot. This is the one that has the deepest connection with Moshe. Why? Question number one. Question number two. Let's go back to the verse. How does it begin? The commandment of the red cow is called, this is the statute of the Torah. Zot chukat ha-Torah. So the simple question is that from here I see when I'm calling this the statute of the Torah, I'm saying that this mitzvah of the red cow, this specific commandment, somehow captures the entire essence and soul of all mitzvot. And thus we should know that this is the, the of all the mitzvot. Some mystical explanations explain this, and if you remember... I've, I've shared this with you in previous years in this class, in this forum, that the secret of the para aduma is fire and water. What is it? You burn the entire 
the entire red cow into ashes and then you put the ashes into water. In the world of Kabbalah, fire and water equals ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. Ratsui vishuv. The, the fire is always yearning upwards. Fire is the ebb. And water represents the flow. Water is always flowing downwards. What is this all about? So in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidis, all of creation is all about ebb and flow. For example, light. The infinite light. Light is always in an ebb and flow motion. It flows downwards to illuminate and then ebbs backwards to go back into its source. Physically, if you watch flames, they flicker. They flicker on and off the wick. And that is a physical manifestation of the spiritual movement of light that it's always, it knows its job is to shine, flow downwards, but every part of it wants to return back into the bosom of its source. So too the vessels. The vessels are also consistently in the ebb and flow movement. On one hand, the vessels yearn upwards to the light, opening themselves up to receive the light. And then on the other hand, they flow back down into the vessel consciousness, which is completely different than the light consciousness. Take it a step further. Every physical definition of life is ebb and flow. The heartbeat. The heartbeat has two movements, ebb and flow, which causes the same thing in the blood. The oxygenated blood is flowing through the body and the blood, once it's deoxygenated, it doesn't have no more the oxygen. It returns, it ebbs back into the heart in order to be able to receive again a replenishment. So everything about life that we know is about ebb and flow. Exactly the same thing exists within mitzvot. The experience of the mitzvah is that the human being has such an overwhelming, powerful experience of ebb. He's yearning for nothing more than to become closer to God. Until he or she realizes that the actualization of their yearning can only become true by flowing downwards and doing a physical mitzvah which means you're fulfilling the will of God. That's where the true oneness happens. So the mitzvah itself is all about the fire and the water. The fire of wanting to become one with God and the realization the only way to do that is the flow of the mitzvah. To stop being in your spiritual yearning but to actually perform the will of God where you truly have a oneness with God, closer to God. That's, and we've shared this in previous classes, that's a simple definition of why this mitzvah is called the mitzvah the statute of the Torah because it carries the secret of all of life and the secret of all of mitzvot the ebb and the flow the fire and the water however this answer really isn't sufficient were it to have said and this is the mitzvah of the Torah then this explanation would have been sufficient however the Torah precisely says not that this is the mitzvah of all mitzvot of the Torah. It says this is the statute of the Torah. Which means that what makes this mitzvah of the red cow, the quintessential, did I say that right? Quint quintessential, <laughs> thank you. I'm tongue-tied tonight, I'm sorry. Of all mitzvot is the statute fact of the mitzvah. Not the fire, water, ebb, flow. But that this is the ultimate statute of statutes is what makes this the mitzvah of all mitzvahs. And now we need to understand why. But one thing we now do understand. The connection between Moses and the red cow has what to do specifically with the fact that the red cow is the ultimate statute of all mitzvot. There's something about that factor of the red cow which makes this commandment have the deepest connection with Moses than all the other 612 commandments. And how do I know so?
because the Torah specifically tells us, right before it tells us that this is the Moses mitzvah, it tells you that this is the statute of the Torah. So now we understand that the connection here is all about the statute part. And we need to understand this. So let's move on now. Let's talk about the self-sacrifice of a statute. Okay? Our sages are really wondering why is it that Moses waited till the fifth book, the book of Deuteronomy, on the border of Israel in the last 47 days of his life. He waited until then to give the Jewish people what would become the ultimate words upon the lips of every Jew. What am I talking about? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, God is our God, God is one. Why did this unbelievable piece of Torah take place only in the Deuteronomy? And, and the sages want to know. And the explanation they give is as follows. The concept of Shema Yisrael is all about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is needed when you are in the position of fulfilling the mitzvot. What does that mean? The generation that died in the desert lived their life in a utopia of spirituality. In a utopia of spirituality, you don't really need self-sacrifice. Where do you need self-sacrifice? Self-sacrifice is needed when the physical environment meets the demands of commandments and prohibitions. Now we need to have self-sacrifice. And thus we now understand that Moshe Rabbeinu purposely gave the Shema Yisrael not to his generation of spiritual utopia, but to Joshua's generation that was going to go into the land of Israel and would have to live on a day-to-day -day life with the self-sacrifice of making both worlds coexist by them in a daily, in a day-to-day -day life. Okay? Now, let's talk about what is the self-sacrifice of a mitzvah. We said that you need self-sacrifice, not in a spiritual utopia, but in a physical environment where you have to live by the demands of commandments and prohibitions, right? So what is that? So to understand that, to understand this, I want to just introduce something very interesting. I told you that 613 commandments divide into three categories. However, on a deeper level, every single commandment has both concepts. I, I'm going to put the, the testimonies on the side for a moment. We're going to focus specifically on the judgments and the, and the statutes, okay? Because they're two polar opposites. Total human reasonable logic and absolute no understanding of logic, okay? Judgments, statutes. Every single mitzvah has within it both the judgment of the mitzvah and the statute of the mitzvah. How so? The statute of the mitzvah is that no matter what logical reason I have, the bottom line is that this mitzvah is a mitzvah because it is the will of God. Not because of what I understand. The bottom line, what makes this a mitzvah? Because I understand that this has to be done? No. What makes it a mitzvah is the statute part of the mitzvah. This is the will of God. Period. End of story. On the other hand, Every mitzvah also has the judgment part of the mitzvah. Every mitzvah does have a reason. The difference between statutes and judgment is that the statutes, the wisdom, the infinite spiritual reason that God has for this mitzvah remains up in the infinite spiritual world of Atzilut. However, as intellect descends and goes through the entire evolution and contraction until we have human intellect, that reasoning cannot be understood. That infinite logical reason of Atzilut, the wisdom of Atzilut, cannot be understood by the finite human logic. Therefore, I told you that King Solomon understood all the statutes. 
Because there is a reason. We just don't have the capacity to understand it. Let's take it a step further. I also told you that God told Moses to you, I will explain the reason. But you and not to others. Why? Here's the interesting process. The intellect of the soul, as it descends through the evolution of the worlds until it comes into the physical body and the physical world, goes through that whole change, layers of layers. However, you should know, and I've mentioned this to you previously, the teaching of Daria Kadosh, that we refer to Moses and that caliber of soul, we refer to them as Nune Yamin. You know what Nune Yamin means? The great creatures of the ocean. The definition of the ocean means that they live in total consciousness of the spirituality. So much so that the word of Atzilut we refer to as ocean. Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, the lower, more egocentric levels, we refer to as land. So you have ocean creatures and you have land creatures. Because Moses' soul is an ocean creature, that means that he existed here in the physical world, in his physical body, exactly the way his soul existed in the ocean, the wisdom of Atzilut. Therefore, God told him, you, I will explain it to. Because you, who here exists within the consciousness of the wisdom of Atzilut, are capable of understanding the logical reason of wisdom of Atzilut. So what we're hearing here is that every single mitzvah has a reason. When we perform a mitzvah, we must embrace both sides of the mitzvah. On one hand, we have to perform the mitzvah for no other reason than this is God's will. Literally, the reason a Jew does not murder is not because it's not moral, but because it's God's will. On the other hand, even when you perform a statute, you need to embrace that there's a reason to this mitzvah. So in the mitzvah that you know the reason, embrace the reason. There's a whole, whole book from the third Lubavitcher Rebbe which explains it. There's a whole book from, from the Arizal called The Reasons of Mitzvot on spiritual levels. So when you know that, by the way, it's not only spiritual levels. Maimonides says that every mitzvah has to have a moral lev level. If you read a certain book called the Sefer Chinuch, which goes through the 613 commandments, he always gives you some moral lesson from that mitzvah. So in other words, you have to also embrace the reason of the mitzvah. When you don't know the reason of the mitzvah, you know what you have to think? That God has a reason. So every mitzvah, you have to do both the statute of the mitzvah and the judgment of the mitzvah. Now let's talk about the self-sacrifice that Moses is telling the Jewish people. You have to have self-sacrifice. You're going into the physical world. You're going as to live as a nation amongst nations. No more within the protection of the clouds of glory in the desert. You should know that you have to have self-sacrifice to perform a mitzvah. What is the self-sacrifice? Well, unfortunately, history told us what the sacrifice is from the auto de fe and all the other self-sacrifice. But now for us here in America, I would say that the deepest sense of self-sacrifice is to sacrifice your will, your intellect, your emotion for God's will. Thus we understand that the self-sacrifice of a mitzvah is the statute of the mitzvah. And thus Moses is telling the Jewish people before they go into the land of Israel you people are a very spiritual people but you also have to have self-sacrifice for a mitzvah don't just do it because of the reason ultimately speaking it's all about surrendering our will our understanding our feelings for God's will God said to do it therefore and therefore alone do I do it? And that is true self-sacrifice. The sacrifice of self as we know ourselves to be. Okay? Obviously, the question is, how does a genetically egocentric to the core creature experience self-sacrifice of such a magnitude of selflessness 
on a practical day-to-day -day living of life? That's the bottom line question. We say Shema Yisrael twice a day. It's not a joke. Self-sacrifice for the egocentric is not easy. And we're saying that you have to live with that 24-7. Every single detail of your life is connected to a mitzvah. How is that possible for creations that were genetically created to be egocentric to the core? What is this all about? To understand this, we're going to go now on a little tour. Okay? In the book of Tehillim, there's a chapter 102, which is called A Prayer for a Poor Man. This refers to King David. King David is referred to as a poor man on a Kabbalistic level. Number one, as you know, he was supposed to be born a stillborn. His life was given to him by Adam. Adam only lived 930 years when he was supposed to live 1,000 years because he gave 70 years away to, to King David. Also, you know that King David represents the moon. The moon has no light of its own. So King David is referred to as a prayer for a poor man. However, in chapter 90, it begins with Philale Moshe, a prayer by Moses. The Zohar says upon this chapter, Tfilat Moshe, Zuhi Tfilat Ashir. The prayer of Moses is the prayer for a rich man. Okay? Now, I want to just share with you right off on the, uh, on the onset, this is a paradox. Because a rich man has no needs. The biblical, that's what we're going to see what that means. The biblical definition, the only biblical definition of prayer is to ask God for your needs. So right here you're looking at a paradox. Tfilah of Ashir. A prayer for a rich man. Okay? Now, before we get to this, and really, we need to really appreciate the paradox. In order to really understand the paradox, we have to see what the Torah definition of rich is. So let's look. One of the best places to look for the definition of rich is in the laws of charity. Here is two interesting laws in the laws of charity. Number one, you have to provide the person with everything that he is lacking. Now, I want to say the words, he is lacking, which means that this is considered lacking for him. Goes on our sages to explain, what does this mean? A person who his entire life had servants. It gets even wilder than that. A person who has all his life had horsemen that run in front of him to announce his arrival. We have to take money from charity to provide that for him. Because him not having that is considered lacking. Poor. Law number one. Here comes law number two. But you should know that you shouldn't use, you don't have to use charity to make him rich. Only to give him what he's lacking. <laughs> now how do these two laws work together? Okay? Before I answer this question, I want to share with you, that by the way, you understand what we learn from here. We learn from here that the definition of rich is that he's not even lacking having servants and horsemen running in front of him. Because if he's lacking that, that's not called rich. That's called lacking and poor. Okay? So, now that we understand what rich means, not only does he have all his needs, but he even has that, which is not needs. No one needs horsemen running in front of him announcing his arrival. So now let's go back to the question that I asked. What an amazing paradox. The prayer of a rich man. If he's a rich man, that means that he has all his needs, not only the needs of necessities of life, but even the outskirts of comfort in life. What's this man praying for? This man has to pray for his needs. Before I answer the question, I want to give you the spiritual dimension of rich. So we have in the world of Kabbalah, we have three different layers, levels of the infinite light. Level number one is called the linear permeating life. That is the life force of all creatures. Someone who is lacking this, this is called poor to the sense of lacking the necessities of life. Then we have the infinite circular encompassing life. This is 
speaking in the tune that we were speaking before. This is the servants and the horsemen running before. Someone who's lacking in this is not lacking in the necessities of life. However, he is still in the realm of lacking and poor. The third level is the essence of light. I want to add on. It's not just the essence of light. It's the primordial essence of light. Now, please understand. When we say the primordial essence of light, that means that this light never went through contraction, which means that it's not digestible and useful for creation. It's primordial. So here, it serves absolutely no need. You should know that the definition of being rich is not only the person who has the li infinite linear permeating light and not only the infinite circular encompassing light, but the definition of rich is he who has the unnecessary essence of light, primordial essence of light. This is Moses. And that's why the Zohar says that Moses' prayer is a prayer for the rich. He not only has what he needs, he not only has his comfort zone above and beyond, he even has that which he could never need because that's the definition of rich. Now we understand the question. What does such a man pray for? He has everything and everything and even beyond everything which he could never need. So the answer here is that Moses, as a leader of the Jewish people, defines his needs by the needs of his people. Moses does not pray for himself. When the Zohar tells us that this is the prayer for the rich, and we now understand what the Zohar calls rich, primordial essence light shines by him, we now understand that the prayer of Moses is a prayer for his people. What this means is, I want, I want, let us appreciate this. Let's not just babble words. What we're saying is that a true leader, his needs are defined by the needs of his people, even if he has no needs at all. Now, I, I want to just insert here an interesting concept so you and I can practically relate to this. How many times is someone upset and crying and talking to you about it, and then they tell you, I, kn I know that this must be so stupid to you, right? What's your answer? The practical answer, if you love this person, is, to me, I don't get why you're crying over this. But what I do get is that if it's hurting you, then it's something I want to deal with. Understand, Moses as a leader had zero needs, neither spiritually nor physically. But the fact that his people were in need, that created to him a need to the point where he could fulfill, the and he did fulfill, the biblical commandment of praying for your needs because his people's needs are his needs. However, there's a beautiful twist here, my friends. When Moses prays, he prays according to his understanding. Let me share with you a very interesting story. There was a chassid that every single year he came to his Rebbe for the holidays. Rosh Yom Kippur, some Torah. And every time before he left, he asked his Rebbe for a blessing. He asked his Rebbe, please bless my horse to be healthy because I'm a coachman and that's my livelihood. So the Rebbe gave the bracha. And every single year, one year, the horse died. This time when he came for the holidays, before he left, he asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, please bless me with a livelihood. That year he became rich. When the Rebbe was asked about it, he said, what don't you understand? Until now he limited my blessings to his paradigm of a horse. Now that he allowed me to bless him according to my paradigm, I did so. Let's go back. Tfilas Usher, when he prays for you, he doesn't pray according to your paradigm of wealth. He prays according to his paradigm of wealth. So we have here a very interesting relationship that takes place in a prayer of the rich, Moses. 
On one hand, the only prayer he has is for his people's needs. On the other hand, when he prays for his people's needs, he prays that they be blessed according to his paradigm of rich. Okay? Now let's talk about this in the most important layer. How does this define itself in our line of service to God? Speak about three layers here. We talk about the layer of poverty, of the necessity of life, which is the permeating light, the linear finite. We talk about the layer of necessity in the, in the comfort of life, which is the circular, the infinite circular encompassing light. And then we talk about the third layer, which is the definition of rich, which is the primordial essence of light. How does this define itself in my service to God? So let's go back to the Shema. In the Shema we go on to say, and you shall love God your God. What are the three things we'd say? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. At this point in the Mimer, in the teaching, the Rebbe defines these three layers of poor a necessity level, poor in comfort level, and rich by these three forms of service. When I love God with all my heart, that is the meditation upon the finite, linear, permeating light. What does that mean? I'm defining my God as God is my life. He is close to me. He is consistently protecting me. It's the life force. This produces the love with all my heart. And what does it mean with all my heart? You know Rashi tells us that when we say over here the word heart, we mean with your godly soul and your animalistic soul. Why so? Because your animalistic soul can also appreciate that God loves me, God's close to me, God protects me, and God always is here for me. What's the second layer of love? The second layer of love is the infinite, the infinite circular encompassing light. What does that mean? That means that over here, I'm not focusing on how God is my life, how God takes care of me. Rather, I'm focusing on the elusive, wondrous part of God. The infinite. The encompassing. And therefore, what is the outcome of meditating on this? The outcome is to understand, wow, that which I connect to in my physical life is only a ray of the God's light. It's only the finite linear. But now that I'm starting to taste, I'm starting to yearn for the infinite, circular, encompassing, wondrous Wondrous as not within my grasp, as within elusive. What is the outcome of this? The outcome of this is that I want to leave. I want my soul to leave my body. I want to give my soul into a total different dimension of reality. Not the finite linear, but the infinite, encompassing, wondrous. And thus this is defined by with all your soul. What is the legal definition of loving God with all your soul? Even when he takes your soul away from you. That is the outcome of understanding that what's really happening is the fulfillment of my yearning to be able to transition from the finite linear into the infinite circular wondrous. The third level of love is with all your might. This is the essence level. This is the essence level which comes from the essence of the soul. It has nothing what to do with my relationship with God. Because remember, we're talking about the primordial essence light. This doesn't even enter into creation. And thus, this is what comes from the essence of my soul to the essence of God's light. It is the fulfillment of with all your might with your entire essence. This is what the Rebbe explains. I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you that as I learned the Mimer again and again, as I searched the Mimer, 
I would like to suggest that there's something else the Rebbe is saying here as well. These three layers are the three layers of mitzvot. Judgments, logical reason, is the linear, finite, permeating light. I can digest it. That's part of me which even my animalistic soul can participate in. I perform the mitzvah and I understand why. I can appreciate it. The testimony, I only understand that yes, it is absolutely fitting to commemorate the miracles that God did for me. However, I don't really digest it. It sort of flirts with the human mind. I don't understand the how. How? Why do I have to keep Pesach this way? Why can't I commemorate it a different way? So it's kind of the encompassing. It's circular. It gets close to the brain. I do catch it, yet it's elusive. The chukim, the statutes, that is the service of the essence. It's absolute surrender to God and to, it's surrender to God's will. It's a self-sacrifice that comes only because the essence of a Jew is one with the essence of God. And thus the only reason to do this mitzvah is because this is what my God wants. Okay? Now, it's important to understand that this third layer, whether we talk about the love of all your might, the essence primordial light, or the performance of statutes for us genetically egocentric to the core creatures is impossible on our own. This has to be given to us by Moses because that is the Moses experience of reality because he does have the primordial essence light relationship with God. And thus it was Moses who stood at the border of Israel and empowered the Jewish people with hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. Self-sacrifice. Don't only perform mitzvahs with the love of your heart, with the love of your soul, but do it with the essence love of all your might. And now we understand what's going on in the first verse. Moses on his own has no needs. Let's talk about it deeper. Moses on his own can never truly experience a pure statute. Because even the ultimate statutes of statutes, he knew the reason. So the only way that Moses can experience that notion of a statute, of self-sacrifice for a mitzvah, total sacrifice of self, is only by connecting to the Jewish people where their needs becomes his needs. Because we don't understand. And when our not understanding creates a need in Moses, Moses now has the concept of a statute and self-sacrifice for a mitzvah. And thus the verse says, Tell them they should take for you. Because without them, you'll never have this mitzvah as the ultimate statute of mitzvahs. You'll never experience what it means to have self-sacrifice of a mitzvah because the bottom line is that you logically understand it. So it's lacking self-sacrifice. On the other side of the coin, what's happening? That once Moses prays for us, we, the genetically egocentric to the core creatures, had now have the possibility and the capacity to have total selflessness and self-sacrifice because Moses prayed for us to have what he understands to be rich. And he's not settling not for the finite linear, not for the circular, infinite circular, but for the essence light where the essence of the Jew's soul shines that when he does a mitzvah, it really doesn't matter the why or the when. It's all about the total surrender. This is what God wants. So we create for Moses the possibility of a statute and Moses gives us in return the ultimate capacity to be absolutely selfless from the essence of our soul with all your might. In closing, you know that in the closing part of a class is where where we have to take all the mystical concepts and make it practical. 
So how do we take these three layers, these mystical three layers of divine light and make it practical to you and me in our day-to-day -day life? So I'm going to share with you what we're really hearing here. What we learned here tonight, my friends, is that Judaism is three-dimensional. That's what we learned here tonight. And it's our job to be open to experience Judaism on all three levels. Number one, the judgment levels. It is our duty to study Torah and to understand the details and the practicality and the practical logical reasons and the practical logical moral lessons from the Torah to the best of our capacity. Layer number one. Layer number two is the what? The circular encompassing. It is our duty to study the teachings of Hasidus which explores the wondrous side of God. The infinite wondrous side of God as this flirts with human intellect. Understanding, understanding, understanding but never completely understanding. It is our duty to learn Hasidus and understand this to the best of our capacity. The third dimension. At the end of the day, Judaism defines itself with our absolute surrender to God and obedience to His commandments. That's what we learned here tonight on the most practical level. Many people just want the side that talks to them much. Some people tell me, Rabbi, don't explain anything to me, just do it. Here's my hand, put on the tefillin. Just the obedience level. Other people only love the chassidus wondrous side of Torah. Talmud and dry code of Jewish law, it's, it's missing salt and pepper. Some people hate the supernal. It leaves them totally lost. Rabbi, just take out a chumash, learn with me the story the way it happened. Learn with me the code of law. Is it kosher? Is it not kosher? Don't start giving me with the klippa and the kadusha. You lose me there, Rabbi. What we learned tonight is that we need all three dimensions of Judaism. It's all part of truly becoming rich. The simple laws and the reasons is the necessity of life. Hasidus is the comfort of the wondrous side of Judaism. And absolutely fundamental is the surrender and the self-sacrifice of obedience to God and the Torah mitzvahs. Thank you.